this is Patrick Ridgel, and welcome once again to another edition of Market Pulse with Transamerica Chief Investment Officer Tom Wald. Hello, Tom. Hello, Patrick. Tom, I'm intrigued by the title of an article you just wrote. It's called, Why Do Stocks Keep Going Up? Here are some answers. I guess a lot of people have that question on their mind. Uh, well, I tell you, Patrick, I- I'm getting that question a lot these days, and it is a very rational question. You have most of the major indexes, the Dow, the S&P 500, NASDAQ, Russell 1000, Russell 2000, either now at or having recently achieved record all-time highs. Mm-hmm. And people take a look around at what's going on in the world, and they see things like COVID cases in the U.S. are closing in on 50 million uh, since the pandemic began, which, of course, is an absolutely horrific statistic. Uh, and inflation is at its highest levels in 30 years. And of course, we have the global supply chain chaos and worker shortages. I think everyone has seen those images of the huge container ships just uh, sitting out in the water uh, with nowhere to dock. Mm-hmm. And the Federal Reserve just announced tapering of open market bond purchases and could be raising interest rates as soon as next summer. And economic growth is now somewhat being called into question as the first Official estimate of third quarter GDP uh, came in at uh, just 2%, well below the previous two quarters, uh, which mm-hmm. both posted at better than 6%. And, of course, Washington is in a bit of a dysfunctional mess, for lack of a better term. And it, it took Congress uh, months to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill that uh, was pretty much agreed to last spring. So, so that's a pretty good list of some not-so-good things going on. Yes. Yet, yet, as you just said, almost all of the major stock indexes are at all-time highs. I can see why some investors might be seeing a disconnect here. Uh, yes, Patrick. I can definitely see how one might come to that conclusion. Uh, but there is an old saying that the market has eyes of its own. As we've talked about many times before, uh, it, the markets many times just love to climb the wall of work. Yeah, and, and as you just outlined, a very, a very solid wall, that's for sure. And Patrick, I do want to caveat everything with what I've said a few times before, which is that in the short term, uh, we could see a 10% correction in the major indexes really at any time. From a perspective mm-hmm. of history and human nature, based on the better than a double we've had since uh, March of last year, most of the stock indexes, we are getting a bit long in the tooth in terms of historical comparisons pretending to bullish market cycles without a correction along the way. But that said, looking out over the next couple of years, I think there remains a strong case for annualized double-digit returns on stocks, and that would be net of any corrections along the way. Okay. Where do you want to start? Okay. Well, first, you have corporate earnings. We are finishing up another very strong season. Remember, at the end of the day, earnings have historically been the single highest correlating factor to stock prices. So right Mm -hmm. now, as third quarter earnings reports continue to filter in, uh, we've had almost 90 percent of the underlying S&P 500 companies release uh, their third quarter earnings reports. And according to FactSet Earnings Insight, more than 80 percent of those companies have reported profits above consensus analyst expectations. And it's looking like this quarter in terms of S&P 500 net operating earnings are looking to be close to 40% higher than the third quarter of 2020. And calendar year 2021 
is being estimated at about 45% higher than calendar year 2020. Mm-hmm. And for calendar year 2022, the early estimates are for about 10% higher than that. So uh, these are strong earnings numbers, Patrick. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, now, whenever you talk earnings, even strong earnings like you just described, you also need to talk valuations. Uh, there are concerns the market could be overvaluing those earnings you just mentioned, correct? Uh, yes, you hear a lot of concerns that earnings are strong, but the multiples on those earnings are too high and, and will have to come down. Uh, so let's take that forward-looking calendar year 2022 uh, earnings estimate I just met, I just mentioned. Right now, it's at about 21 times uh, price-to-earnings ratio uh, that many are are calling expensive, uh, which in isolation is uh, you know a, a very fair argument based on historical valuation ranges. However, mm-hmm. what I think is perhaps a more conclusive way to look at current valuations is to take that 21 times multiple and flip it uh, to get your earnings yield. Uh, which would be about uh, four, 4.75%, and subtract out the current long-term treasury rate. Let's use the 10-year treasury yield. And that gets you to better than the 3% differential on earnings yields versus long-term U.S. treasury rates. And historically speaking, over the past 50-plus years, that has been a good entry point for stocks when judging them on future three-year returns. Since 1969, buying the S&P 500 with an earnings yield of 3% higher than the 10-year Treasury yield has resulted in an average annualized return of better than double digits over the next three years. So to me, we are still in a very reasonable valuation range right now. Now, Tom, along those lines, interest rates, that is, what are your impressions of the recent Fed meeting and what that might mean for interest rates in the year or so ahead. And, and in turn, what that might mean for stocks. Because a lot of people are worried we could be heading into a tightening cycle at the Fed, which would not be good. Yeah, great, great point, Patrick. And, and yes, the fact that the Fed has now officially moved away from its peak cycle of accommodation and liquidity uh, that began last March uh, is being cited by a lot of people as a bearish indicator uh, within the quote-unquote stocks have gone up too much argument. So there's a lot to unpack here in regard to what transpired at the last Fed meeting during the first week of November. First, it was a somewhat of a milestone-oriented meeting in that they officially announced the long-awaited taper on open market asset purchases. As we know, since March of last year, when the pandemic first hit and hit hard, uh, the Fed began providing liquidity to the markets through monthly purchases of $120 billion in Treasury bonds and agency mortgage-backed securities. And at this past meeting, they announced that the amount of those monthly bond purchases will start to come down by $15 billion per month, which, if that monthly pace continues, will take the Fed's bond buying to zero by the middle of next year. And the market's reaction to this? Uh, pretty much nothing. <laughs> because, <laughs> okay. because this tapering announcement has been signaled, signaled to the market by the Fed for a few months now. Okay. In fact, some thought they might have even been ready to go with this at the previous meeting back in September. So when that didn't happen, this asset purchase reduction 
was kind of penciled in for the November meeting, which is when it happened. So I, I believe it was all on the market by then. Now, what about actual rate hikes? What What do you think the timing is on those? Uh, well, Patrick, I think that's likely to be pushed up. Uh, you know, about six months ago, I think consensus was we wouldn't see actual rate hikes as it changes in the target range and the Fed funds rate until 2023. With the inflation numbers being what they've been since then, I think we could be looking at rate hikes in the second half of 2022. And so our thinking is you could see two quarter point moves during the second half of next year, putting the Fed funds rate into a target range of uh, 0.50% to 0.75% by the end of next year. And what would be the market's reaction to that? Well, I, I really don't think it will necessarily be all that bad or, or even a little bit bad. I think a lot of the market's concern about the Fed right now is no longer about are they being accommodative enough, but are they doing enough to combat inflation? In okay. fact, Patrick, uh, the Fed has been so accommodative and has provided so much liquidity for the market since the pandemic began. I think the fear most investors have now is, have they been falling behind the curve and fighting inflation? And by concluding their open market asset purchasing in about eight months, between now and let's say next July, uh, which compares to about a year the last time they tapered in 2013 and 2014, and then instituting two rate hikes for a total of 50 basis points or half a percent, uh, knowing that could happen in the next year or so could go a long way toward what investors are now looking for from the Fed, more so than uh, just uh, ongoing easy money policy. So you would view the end of tapering and potential rate hikes in the second half of next year as being neutral to markets in the short term. But what investors might be wanting in terms of curbing inflation in the long term? Uh, that's right. Okay. So I would view future Fed policy in the pending rate environment as not being a high risk for the markets in the year ahead. Okay, now let's talk inflation. Mm -hmm. We are seeing elevated levels of higher prices, probably lasting longer than many might have thought they would a few months ago. So I would view inflation, along with COVID case trends, as one of the two major wild cards for the markets over the next year. As we mentioned earlier, recent consumer price increases, as measured by two of the predominant metrics, the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, and the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, are at their highest levels since the early 1990s. In fact, this most recent CPI report for the month of October – posted a headline inflation number even higher than most of the upwardly revised forecasts coming in at 6.2% year over year, its largest increase since December of 1990. And the core, X Food and Energy print, was 4.6%, its highest since August of 1991. And what we're seeing in these rising prices, Patrick, is really a combination of both the supply and demand imbalance within those sectors of the economy most impacted by both last year's shutdowns and this year's reopenings, like used cars and trucks, rental cars, airlines, hotels, motels, and other lodgings, and 
those industries most impacted by the global supply chain bottlenecks and worker shortages, such as, for instance, furniture, apparel, and sporting goods. So it really is a bit of a perfect storm right now. Mm-hmm. So, Patrick, my best bet would be that inflation comes down into, let's say, the 25 to 3% range by about mid-year 2022. Mm-hmm. I'm going on the probability that a lot of the worker shortages and the global supply chain constraints start to work themselves out by then. Companies start to figure out how to ship around uh, the most difficult ports. Workers slowly come back as their uh, benefits and savings wind down. And some of those really high inflationary sectors of the economy, like used cars, car rentals, hotels, and airfares, uh, normalize on their prices. But, Mm -hmm. But Patrick, I think we all have to realize that on inflation and the global supply chain, we really are in uncharters right now, apart from the pun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there simply has never been anything like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, a once-in-a-century pandemic creating a once-in-a-century economic shock, followed by a once-in-a-century economic recovery. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a clear path forward to lower and more manageable inflation, closer to the Fed's long-term target 2%. But how long it takes to get there you know, is a bit up in the air. So I would take my best educated guess at being uh, late spring, early summer of next year. Uh, And if if that turns out to be the case, I think stocks should do pretty well as inflation rates come down over that time frame. Now, Tom, you've also mentioned the other wild card, of course, being COVID case trends. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been talking about COVID in the markets for so long now. How Mm -hmm. are you judging it from here on out? Uh, yeah, uh, very good question, Patrick. I think we have to start with the premise of whenever COVID is behind us. And when I say behind us, I don't mean eliminating the virus forever, because we may never get to that point, realistically speaking. But perhaps taking it below a pandemic and epidemic status, perhaps reaching herd immunity and getting to a point where the threat or consequences of being infected by COVID no longer impact consumer behavior. I believe whenever we get to that point, we are going to see a big increase of consumer activity similar to what was experienced after other past historical left tail events like the Spanish flu in World War I or World War II or the end of stagflation in the 1980s. So the question is, How long will it take to get there? Now, here I'd like to point out a couple of important points. First, we had the big upshot in COVID cases caused by the Delta variant late last summer. Daily cases jumped from a seven-day average of about 12,000 in June to about 180,000 by early September. Now, since then, we've come down quite a bit uh, to what is right now about 70,000. Uh, on a seven uh, average uh, seven-day trend. Uh, so still quite a ways to go, but the big picture is improving. And despite all the controversy, uh, vaccine rates are, are rising. We're now at close to uh, 60% of all adult, adults in the U.S. Uh, being fully vaccinated. So this overall trend, I think, you know, should be good for stocks. Second, and perhaps more importantly, 
we have just had what I believe is a major therapeutic breakthrough in the treatment of COVID. Not another vaccine uh, in the preventative mode, but a treatment for those infect- infected. Uh, we learned of this on November 5th when pharmaceutical giant and COVID vaccine producer Pfizer announced highly successful results pertaining to a new antiviral pill to treat diagnosed cases of the virus. Now, this came from a concurrent phase two, phase three clinical trial displaying an 89% reduction in the risk of hospitalization and death for high-risk adult COVID-19 patients. Patrick, this trial was halted early for ethical reasons, which means that the efficacy rate, the effectiveness of this new pill was so strong that they were required to stop the trial so that the placebo group could have access to the new drug. Wow. That does sound like good news. Yes, it is. Clinical trials for new drugs don't get any more successful than that. Mm-hmm. So when combining this new, this potential new treatment with continuing vaccine efforts, there now appears, uh, in my opinion, to be a path toward dramatic case reductions in the year ahead, perhaps reclassifying COVID from pandemic to epidemic or even herd immunity status. Uh, Pfizer is expected to submit data on this new antiviral drug to the FDA by the end of November uh, with hopes of a full approval by early December. So those who become infected with COVID could have access to this new drug by the holidays. That's really good news. So what does this all mean for COVID case trends in 2022? Yeah, uh, again, this is uncharted waters. And while I certainly don't have the medical qualifications and background, or, or I should say any medical qualifications <laughs> and background uh, for that matter, uh, uh-huh. to give a firm answer on that, I think a few scenarios would have to at least be on the table. And those uh, you know, would include perhaps once again reaching the lower case rates of last June prior to the Delta variant, COVID moving from pandemic to epidemic status, or even herd immunity. Uh, I think any or all of these and everything in between could be on the horizon and would be very good for stocks. It's it's fascinating to envision this all playing out. It, 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 yeah, yes, it really is. So, Tom, a couple more areas you talk about in the article. Third quarter GDP really slowed, and this was also concerning to investors. Yes, and deservedly so. We started 2021 with two very strong quarters of economic growth. First quarter GDP grew by an annualized rate of 6.3%, and the second quarter annualized growth was 6.7%. Third quarter was originally forecast at a similar level of growth, but was negatively impacted by the onslaught of new COVID cases from the Delta variant and the escalating inflation, both of which took its toll on consumer spending. So this third quarter number of 2% was a real disappointment. Lowest uh, quarter of economic growth since the recovery began last year. And this created some market angst, no question. Uh, However, since then, and we are now about exactly halfway through the fourth quarter, uh, it looks uh, like the Atlanta Fed is tracking a pretty strong rebound in this current quarter, based in large part so far on uh, higher consumer spending and private investment. 
And potentially supporting that would be the October employment report, which was very strong at 531,000 jobs uh, added in the economy and upward revisions of another uh, of another 235,000 in, in August and September. So mm-hmm. again, if this past third quarter economic growth turns out to be a, a one-off, so to speak, and we resume, say, the 5 to 6% uh, annualized growth in the fourth quarter, I think that also probably supports stronger stock prices. And finally, Tom, something I know you always enjoy talking about. Yes. Events in Washington and potential changes in the federal tax code and what that might mean for the market. Uh, Yes, Patrick, there has been no shortage of uh, coverage regarding the recent passage of the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill and the pending a uh, Democrat-only sponsored social spending bill, which started out at about $3.5 trillion and in its latest draft form is now down to about $1.75 trillion, only mm-hmm. $1.75 trillion. Now, these, uh, these two bills uh, have been a total soap opera in terms of their relationship with one another and which one would be voted on first in the House of Representatives and whether the larger social spending bill could garner 50 votes in the Senate, in particular support from a couple of moderate Democrats, namely Joe Manchin from West Virginia and and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. Anyway, the latest is that the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure has now passed in both the House and Senate. However, there is still a ways to go on the social spending bill, which will ultimately need to pass the Senate and, of course, require the support of those two moderates, Manchin and Cinema. Mm-hmm. But, Patrick, in my opinion, politics aside, and from a pure market standpoint, here's what I would say is the good news, which is that. It now looks as though any tax hikes associated with either the recently passed bipartisan infrastructure bill or the pending social spending legislation will be quite benign. Okay. The past infrastructure bill essentially includes no tax hikes and the social spending legislation currently under negotiation has now had most of the originally proposed Biden tax hikes taken out over the past month or so, and they have not been included in the most current version. These include initial provisions such as a higher corporate tax rate, higher top individual rate, higher capital gains rate, and the elimination of the step-up in cost basis on inherited assets and taxation on unrealized capital gains, all of which, in my opinion, would have been market unfriendly. Now, what looks to be potentially taking their place is a minimum 15% corporate tax on book income and higher individual tax rates on those incomes in excess of $10 million annually, both of which I would view as not being nearly as market unfriendly as the series of tax provisions originally proposed in the legislation and of which date all the way back to the 2020 campaign and what was released by the Biden campaign, and of course thereafter the Biden White House as their overall tax tax plan. Mm-hmm. So, short of the bottom line here is, again favorable for stocks in my opinion, is that the removal of the original White House proposed tax increases will likely 
now close to eliminate a cloud of tax concerns that have to some extent been overhanging the market since last year's presidential election. And I think the markets like this apparent outcome, in my judgment, and that is another reason why stocks have continued moving higher over the past month or so, and since most of these higher tax provisions were eliminated from the proposed social spending bill. Well, Tom, as always, this has been a fascinating discussion. Again, the topic of your article is why do stocks keep going up? Here are some answers. And I think you've given us more than a very few good ones here today. Um, And Tom, just as a quick reminder to everyone before we leave, I believe our next podcast will be a special one of sorts. Uh, Yes, Patrick, we'll be reviewing the Transamerica 2022 Market Outlook. Yes, the Market Outlook is always a marquee discussion every year. And we will really be looking forward to that next month. Yes, we will. Uh, Should have lots to talk about. I'm sure we will. Uh, Thanks for your time and insights today, Tom. Thank you, Patrick. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. One nine one two five three five.